0: I'm Ted Sides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by TED and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On the eighth and final episode of season one of Private Equity Deals... Ravi Sachdev and Ron Williams from Clayton Dublier and Rice discuss Agilon Health. Ravi is a partner and Ron an operating advisor at CDNR, a global private equity firm with $57 billion in assets under management that was founded in 1978. Agilon Health is a company CDNR created from the purchase of two businesses in 2016 and grew using aspects of buyout, venture capital, and growth equity investment strategies. The business assists primary care physicians transition from a traditional fee-for-service model to an outcomes value-based model where incentives are aligned across patients, payers, and providers. Our conversation covers the founding of Agilon, its economics, and CDR's entry in the business. We turn to Agilon's start as a novel business concept alongside established traditional capabilities, driving operational change, expanding the model, and preparing the company to go public. We close by discussing the potential to leverage this model across other opportunities in the space. Please enjoy my conversation with Ravi Sachdev and Ron Williams. Ron, Ravi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, why don't we start with a brief background on CDNR? Maybe Robbie, why don't you take that? Sure. So CDNR was started in 1978. Four
1: individuals came together, a mix of operating and financial folks. The firm was really built on the idea that it was going to help businesses innovate and grow through a mix of operating and financial talent. The firm has been around 44 plus years now and that same approach is really at the core of everything we do. It's translated to what we define as operational value creation. We've built a place in that it is exclusively focused on private equity, full partner ownership, and we invest out of only one fund. Big hallmark of what we have built is partnership with both families, corporates, entrepreneurs, and really operational complexity of businesses. 75% of our transactions since 2009 were done in exclusive transactions and 60% of those had a partnership element to them. We invest across a series of sectors. Business services is a portion of what we do. Consumer retail, healthcare is about 25% of what we do. Industrials is about nearing 40% of what we do. And then we now have a financial services and technology business that is close to 15% of what we do. The business is global. The firm invests both in North America and Western Europe. A little bit over 70% of what we do is in North America. Almost 30% is in Europe. Within Europe, we do 50% of our activity is really in the UK. And we work across again, same sector segments that we have. The firm has grown enormously today we're managing 57 billion dollars in aum as of the end of really last year. The firm has grown a lot,
0: 260 plus employees across both the US and Europe. Ron, I'm really curious, how does someone with your history and operational chops come into the fold at a place like CDNR? For me, it was what
2: I envision as the next phase of my career having been chairman and CEO and spent most of my career in healthcare and technology. What I wanted to do at this phase was to focus on how I could apply my skills and expertise to helping businesses grow and really build enduring, sustainable business franchises. When I looked at private equity as a category, it seemed like a place where I could do that. When I was looking at selecting a private equity firm, I interviewed with a wide number of firms. And what struck me about Clayton, Dougalier, and Rice was the way the operating partner advisor model was embedded in the founding of the firm and embedded in the operating of the firm and embedded in the governance of the firm. And so for me, it seemed like a very good fit which was an opportunity to work alongside very knowledgeable and experienced financial investment professionals who over time had become pretty good operators, but had never sat in the chair of being CEO. It seemed like a really good fit, and I found the values of the firm, I found the operating culture, the operating model, and the way it partnered with companies, families to create value,
0: I found really appealing. We're going to dive into Agilon as one example of uh, the many deals you've done. Why don't we start with just what a description of the company is? The thing that's most important about Agilon is that it is a
2: business model that is designed to fundamentally improve the quality of care that Medicare beneficiaries who in the U.S. are 65 years old or older, principally, and are receiving healthcare paid for by the US government. And what we found was that the physician community that was serving this population had a broken business model that was not working well. It was clear to me that there was an opportunity in the market to transform the delivery of healthcare to seniors and to transform the business model that existing independent primary care physician practices had, and to do so in a way that was capital light, capital efficiency, and would result in what is pretty unusual in the sense that the physician had an opportunity to win, patient had an opportunity to win, and the payers, who ultimately are the intermediaries between the government and the physician practices, had an opportunity to win.
1: Today, in what the business is doing, there's primary care physicians across the country, they might be employed by a hospital. Majority of them are in what we think about as independent physician groups that are physician organizations where the physicians own the group, which has really been the history of medicine in this country. And those primary care doctors are taking care of these Medicare beneficiaries that that Ron highlighted. And today, those physicians, in large part, get paid for the transactions that they execute on so like if you go in to see your primary care doctor and you have a cough or a cold or you have diabetes and you need to get checked you see them and then they bill some payer whether that be the government or a private payer for that and they collect a fee for that transaction the interesting thing is that the costs related to that diabetic go far beyond that one individual expense right they might use drugs They might go to the hospital. They might see an endocrinologist. Their spend is multiple times larger than that fee that they paid for. But primary care physicians, while they are influencing that spend in the way in which they take care of that patient, they're not accessing that opportunity. In most of the country, they were being paid for those transactions. And so what Agilon has done is help them flip their business model from that transaction based business model to one where they take ownership for the entire spend of that patient, irrespective of whether that spend happens in their office. And when I say take responsibility for it, they take full economic responsibility for that patient's spend. So if the patient cost the system $1,000 a month last year, and next year they cost them 850 they participate in the economic benefits of that if they cost more they own the risk of that and so agilon built a platform to support that transition and execution of that new business model but alongside that also supported the capital requirements for that meaningful a change for a primary care physician it's really a mix of people process and technology that are supporting that transition when we were starting wasn't a lot of talk about this, but today we talk a lot about value-based care in this country <laughs> where doctors are paid for outcomes as opposed to just transactions. And that's what the business is doing. And, and today doing that in almost 30 geographies across the country, 2,000 plus doctors doing that from a primary care perspective.
0: Can you describe a unit economic of that transaction, say from the doctor's perspective? Today, a primary care doctor
1: may see a senior, and they'll collect revenue for seeing that senior in that transaction-based business model of about $80 per visit. And so let's say that they see that patient three times a year. So it's $240, and there's at least 50% operating cost against that revenue. So they're collecting about $120 of profit seeing that patient in traditional fee-for-service. That same patient, in terms of what a Medicare Advantage payer might be getting for that patient, could be anywhere between $900 and $1,000 per member per month. So let's, for round numbers, use $1,000. So that $120 of profit in terms of the spend that is actually happening on an annual basis that a Medicare Advantage payer is receiving is somewhere around $12,000. And so in our model, a doctor has the opportunity to earn a portion of that $12,000 on top of that $120 that I just talked about. For round numbers, the gross profit on a per patient basis that can come out in very not optimal scenarios, is somewhere around $200 per member per month. So let's just call it $2,400. But just to give kind of the scope of it from a unit economics perspective, if that patient is being managed in a full risk model, $2,400 relative to in a fee-for-service model, $120. (laughs) And Not all that dissimilar from models that we've seen across other sectors of the economy when people flip from a transaction-based
0: model to something that was more subscription-oriented. So with that opportunity set, say from the physician perspective, the win-win-win, what was the business that you were buying into when you first got involved? The concept that
1: I just described, we were not a pioneer of that concept. That concept existed in certain geographies across the country. Specifically, California. And so we knew that there was an enormous amount of success happening for payers, for the government, and for physicians and patients in that geography. But that had not been ported anywhere else, really, across the country. We would have loved to buy a well functioning business in that geography, but that opportunity just didn't exist. And so we wanted to find another path (laughs) to get to that business. So we started to develop in 2015, a thesis around the category. Where was Medicare going to go? Where was value going to go? What were the capabilities you required? What was the total size of the addressable opportunity? And started to develop conviction that the opportunity was there. And then said, okay, how do we find an entry point? So we went to California where the idea had existed. And we found an entry point, a business that was doing this not for the Medicare population but was doing it for the Medicaid population in Southern California. And they were taking a portion of risk on the Medicaid population. And through that effort of diligencing the market, looking at this platform in California, we started to identify leaders that could be a part of this business. Because we knew we needed a new leadership. We needed people with subject matter expertise. And then we needed capabilities specific to the Medicare space. So we also found another company that was doing this in the state of Hawaii, but actually doing it for the Medicare population, run by an entrepreneur, grown really quickly, had some basic capability relative to the things that we needed a business to be able to do. And so our entry point was this medicaid platform in california that was generating some cash flow and doing some things that we thought were potentially valuable for that state where we knew the opportunity was scaled and really capabilities around the medicare population and doing this in a non-california market which was hawaii and so those were two of the key entry points to do this so we decided that we were going to try and put those two companies together as a starting point. The third component, though, was we knew that our thesis was really contingent upon our ability to take this outside of the state of California and take it to these groups that we thought wanted to flip their business model from that unit economic model I described to the one that we think the opportunity was. So we met the largest independent physician group in the country, which was a group called Central Ohio Primary Care, 100% physician owned, and big Medicare population operating in Columbus, Ohio. And we said, hey, we're gonna buy these capabilities, we're gonna add team, we're gonna put capital behind it, but we need an anchor partner customer to really go build this out with. And we think for a bunch of different reasons, You're a really attractive partner to do that. And do you want to take a bet with us? Do you want to become an equity owner with us? Do you want to influence the development of the platform? And ultimately, the business model we were going to build was this 50-50 partnership model, which became very unique with a physician group. And do you want to be the pioneer for the creation of that business model? And so they said, yeah, let's do it. And so the way it came together was the entry point, was the acquisition of those two businesses sitting side-by-side with this partnership uh, that was really going to be our foundational customer.
0: Ron, I'd love to ask, this is this interesting combination of buying some businesses and capabilities with a concept, and that usually requires change. So whether that's change in leadership, change in how the doctors are, their mindset and how they're operating. As you looked at this with your experience, how did you dive in to take these capabilities and help the management teams turn them into this vision of what Agilon would become?
2: Well, I would say that there is a lot of change that was involved and I would categorize it in the following ways. As we work with Central Ohio Primary Care, as Robbie described, we help them understand the power of analytics to help them do the thing they really wanted to do, which was to deliver better care, which they were far down the path on. But for example, a big percentage of a physician's time is spent seeing patients who present with symptoms. With the right analytics and analysis, You can actually put a patient on a schedule that gets in front of their symptoms and their challenges and helps avoid unwarranted and unnecessary hospitalizations. Robbie talked about the economic model, and it's really important to revisit that a bit. And if you think about the spend of $1,000 versus reducing that to $850, the question comes, what are the tools, the capabilities, and the changes necessary to accomplish that? some of which are things as simple as instead of having patients who call at five or six o'clock go to the emergency room for care versus having an after-hours center and physicians on call who can help those patients assess whether they really need to go to the emergency room or not. And every patient who doesn't need to go represents a substantial savings, which in a transaction-based payment, the physicians has no benefit. In the model that we created, every time that the practice changes in a way that they can provide better care and service to those patients they in fact increase their bottom line and so aligning incentives is really central to helping physicians make the change because they deliver better care they eliminate unwarranted hospitalizations They do a better job of managing patients who should be seen more frequently because of the severity of their condition. Now, the other big part of transformation and change is working with the payers, health plans in a market like Ohio where we started, where the local staff there does not understand the model of a subscription-like payment. And so there was a good deal of reaching out to senior executives in these organizations who many were familiar with this, but they had much more of a global view. And so there was a lot of training and orientation and contract work necessary to, in essence, teach our payer partners how to interact with us in these geographies. There were also changes broadly in the local delivery system wasn't used to the local medical group, Central Ohio Primary Care, taking an interest in things it perhaps historically had delegated without really getting as actively engaged as they were. Inside the company, as Robbie described, one of the critical things that we always focus on is, do we have the right human capital? And so we started out, making certain we were recruiting people who had the right competencies, the right experiences, and then helping them understand the model. And I think playing in some instances a very hands-on role in working with them to model and emulate and really train them in what for them was a completely new approach. And so this whole notion of creating the model, transforming it was really creating an ecosystem and training that ecosystem in the opportunity to reduce costs, improve quality, reduce unnecessary variations in care, and reduce better outcomes and better patient experience while increasing the margin for physicians and for
1: ourselves. Ted, just let me add one thing to what Ron said. What we determined that we were going to do, which was a very different thing for a private equity firm, we were going to use our capital really two ways. We were going to pay dollars to create the platform at the beginning, which is to acquire these businesses that we hoped were going to generate some cash flow, but bring capability. And that was a part of how we thought about how we'd create return. But the second thing we were going to do, which we did in partnership with Columbus and has been really core to everything we've done, was we created an economic model for risk in partnership with a doctor group that didn't exist before. And our capital was a big part of that. So what we architected with Central Ohio Primary Care, which was core to the business and core to our investment, was a 50-50 partnership model where we would take their attributed Medicare patients, which were already their patients. We didn't have to go out and recruit new patients. We would put them into a joint venture. We would manage those patients through the joint venture in that business model or economic model I talked about. We Agilon, and at the time, all obviously using our CD and equity capital because the company didn't have enough capital, would take 100% of the downside risk in that new business model. It would make 100% of the investment to build the infrastructure for that partnership, and in return we would have a 20-year partnership with the group, and we would generate 50% of the economics out of that 20-year partnership. And so we took a very different approach from a capital perspective, but what that did was take a physician group that one could not absorb downside risk, didn't have an economic model where they could invest ahead of the outcome (laughs) in the infrastructure that was required, and as opposed to being a vendor to them, we created alignment around outcome. We didn't take any fees, but we believed in the unit economics of that 1,200 bucks I was talking about, over the long term, which is a way, very powerful subscription model. And all of a sudden, a lot of the change management, a lot of the alignment happened right out of the box. And that has the same model we've executed everywhere across the country. So a big, big part of this was trying to figure out a business model for risk for a physician group that lacked the infrastructure and the ability to do it. And that was a big part of how this all came together.
0: This particular creation of this company is a funny hybrid between, I don't want to say venture, but it's sort of a new concept, but then you're also buying businesses with capabilities to tack into that. And now you're coupling that with a risk model where you're clearly taking a lot of risk to get what you see as a big reward, how did you get to the point where you had sufficient conviction that this would work, that you could both take that risk and then go buy businesses that didn't look anything like what you were intending to build?
1: So one, our original investment case said that the business that we were buying in California and the business that we were buying in Hawaii, which we were buying, we believed at that time, on a very, very attractive basis from a value perspective was going to create a certain level of base return. And because of the exclusive nature of how we did that, meaning we didn't buy those businesses in a process, we spent basically nine months of 2016 developing an economic model for this partnership with Central Ohio Primary Care using subject matter talent (laughs) that we were going to acquire through one of the businesses and really beat that up to say, okay, under a whole bunch of different scenarios, what do we think this is going to look like over time? And we got the benefit of being able to analyze that and really, I think, understood really well what the economics and risk could be and got the opportunity with our partner, COPC, to look at that together, get alignment around that. And so as we were going into our underwriting, we were saying, okay, here is the nature of the upside. And guess what? We just executed on a 20-year partnership with the largest physician group in the country that anybody in the world would love to buy and be in a 20-year partnership with them. Now, the reality of what happened, I think you and I talked about this one time before, is we had a lot of ups and downs with the original businesses that we bought.
0: So, Ron, I'm curious to ask about these bumps in the road that Ravi mentioned. What was that period like for you as you're both trying to work with those businesses and then trying to create this new partnership model going forward?
2: Well, it was very challenging because what we discovered as we began to operate the initial business that we acquired that focused on Medicaid, that the business had not been operated consistent with the correct compliance standards in California. And we spent a good deal of time cleaning up the past sins of the management team there. And in that period, it was important that we establish, our credibility as people who took compliance very seriously and made certain that we corrected the deficiencies while we simultaneously worked to maintain the customer relationships that this platform had. And I think the fact that we self-identified these issues when we discovered them, that we worked very diligently and aggressively and spared no expense to correct the problems gave us the kind of breathing room that rehabilitated the entity in that marketplace and maintained the continuity of customer relationships and ultimately cleared up the historic regulatory issues. And so we became viewed as part of the solution as opposed to the cause or part of the problem. And so we had a business that was cleaning up these pass sins and omissions figuring out how to maintain the cash flow and operational effectiveness of the business during that period, while we focused on building the new business and the new platform simultaneously. And that required different skills, different capabilities. And needless to say, that made recruitment a bit of a challenge as people were hearing and reading things that were somewhat discerning if you didn't sit down and get the facts. But I think ultimately the fact that we conducted this appropriately and effectively demonstrated our commitment to doing things the right way and really turned out, I think, to be a plus in our recruitment of the right kind of talent to go forward with the business plan as we had envisioned it.
0: What was the spark that went off when you realized that this model that you had thought of and created and worked on started to really work?
2: The day that we actually obtained the agreement with Central Ohio Primary Care was a really, really important day. They were good partners, and that was really a foundational belief that the business was about partnership and that unlike companies that have corporate offices and corporate staff, everything about Agilon is about partner support. Because that's the fundamental nature of the business. And so that spark of that initial agreement, and then from that, signing our first contractual agreements with payers, creating the first risk bearing entity in Ohio, and creating the joint governance mechanism that we have with the physicians as partners and colleagues, all of that came together in a fairly short period of time and said to us that. Our reading of the macro environment and trends was correct, that this could be done and that it represented a capital light model that we believe solved an important problem for physicians who really wanted to remain independent
0: but had a fundamentally broken business model. I'm curious the rollout path from these initial three or the two in the partnership to serving 30 different cities. How did that come about in the business?
1: We went into implementation with Central Ohio Primary Care on 1 1 2017 with the goal of going live in full risk on 1 1 2018. And so, as Ron highlighted, we got a little bit lucky in the sense that the quality of the partnership that we built with COPC was really, really strong. And so, what really clicked for me was pretty early into the 2017 period. Physicians within Central Ohio primary care, I think felt super empowered by the fact that they were in some ways retaking control of their own geography because they were really now responsible for both payment and care delivery in their community or were going to be. And that was super motivating for them. And so they started to introduce us to independent physicians in the state of Ohio. So in June of 2017, I got a chance to sit down with six other independent groups across the state and explain what we were going to try and do. And one of the benefits we got was the credibility of Central Ohio primary care and their validation of one, the business model, their validation of us as a partner, their validation of us as people. And for a physician who had lacked capital, lacked resource, to be sitting on the other side of the table and hear somebody say, Hey, you can go flip your business model and guess what? You don't have to spend any money to do it, and I'm gonna invest the dollars, like that resonated with that group. And so physician group from Akron, Ohio said, Hey, like this is pretty interesting. Can you come talk to me? And then the independent physician community Are very well respected as leaders in healthcare delivery. Through that network, I was able to meet the COPC equivalent in Austin, Texas, Austin Regional Clinic, which we talk about hospitals all the time. Like in the care delivery world, that's primary care, these are brands that the physicians know. And Austin Regional Clinic was one of those. And they also were empowered by the idea that they could flip their geography. So late. Into the 17 period, we started working on them, and they went into implementation on 1118. And then, pretty darn early in '18, even though we were just going live in risk, you just started to get visibility to what the economics were going to be. And that group of three physician groups, they started to kind of get on fire a little bit as it relates to what this was going to mean. And what the opportunity was. And they started to communicate to their peers. So a physician leader in Austin communicated to a physician leader in Pittsburgh. A physician leader in Akron communicated to a physician leader in Dayton. Another physician leader communicated to a physician leader in Hartford. And all of a sudden, there's a kind of network benefit of that flywheel. Like we see in lots of network businesses. And so... At the same time that economic outcome was pulling through and physicians were feeling increasingly empowered, there were more and more physicians that were essentially saying, man, this is really impactful for me. And so without a lot of development infrastructure, the traditional sales model, we were kind of getting this network benefit and that's really what drove it. And at the same time, pressure on primary care groups was growing. <laughs> Payment pressure was growing, burnout was growing, and the beat around value-based care was growing. And that's in many ways what drove it. But without a group of physician leaders across the country like essentially talking to their peers <laughs> about what they're doing, you wouldn't have seen the trajectory that we got. Yeah. The one thing I would add, Robbie, is that
2: the pandemic in general, was a really important time for primary care physicians because those on the transaction model saw the transaction volume decline, and yet patients were in fact calling in, wanting telemedicine, wanting to get assistance, and yet the fundamentals of the practice were challenged as a result of the lack of office visits. Whereas in our model, Because of the subscription revenue, the practice continued to have the resources necessary to support readjusting to delivering care during this period. And so that also increased the awareness and to some degree, I think, the interest and potential preference for this
0: model. Ron, as you start to see more and more practices in different geographies and more and more physicians coming into this model... What did you see in terms of the variability? Did you think about a high growth business of sort of integrating everybody to make sure that the patient delivery is what you would want, that the standards you would want, and also the different personalities involved when you have more and more of these practices in different places coming online. One of the things that we've been very
2: thoughtful about is to select practices that have very good physician leadership. That is one of the criteria that a group has to pass in order for us to feel that we can be a good partner to them and they can be a good partner to us. And so that is one of the criteria. I think the other is, as we've gone down the experience curve of learning to work with these local practices where there are a lot of similarities, but there also are differences. These are small businesses. There are entrepreneurial founders in many instances who have points of view about how they wanna run their business, and we also recognize that we have lifted a portion of their business into the risk-bearing entity, but they do have other lines of business. And so I think we've continued to be very good listeners, to do a very good assessment on the front end as to whether we think the group Has the potential to be a good partner. And because of the lead time, we're able to spend a good deal of time getting to know each other. But it is a challenge in the sense that everyone's different, but we also get the benefit of those differences in the network effect of bringing the groups together and having them share best practices and approaches. And that's turned out to be one of, I think, part of the secret sauce is this network connectivity and this community of like-minded, independent positions running their practices, all of whom have seen the wisdom of partnering with Agilon and getting the benefit of the technology, the infrastructure, the human capital, and the analytics, and our ability to interact with multiple payers and create one data stream and one set of relationships, which feeds into their practice.
1: One thing I think on that and you highlighted it. This is a hybrid transaction between buying some capabilities and then building something. So, a hybrid of traditional private equity and venture almost or scaled growth equity. The big learning for me on that is the opportunity to build something ground up, like we got a chance to do in Columbus, to so look at the economic model, understand what the levers were that were going to drive it. And find commonality in those levers across markets and know that our value creation thesis was going to be built around our ability to find that commonality and create consistency across markets was really impactful to our overall thesis. So everything we focused on early on was create commonality around governance, create commonality around the operating structure that lives in the market create commonality around the economic model, create commonality around the levers. And one benefit we had is that the Medicare business is a national program. It's consistent across markets. So that helped a lot. But as I think about the value of creating something, you don't get that opportunity always when you start with existing DNA in a business. And here we got that opportunity, which I think had a real significant impact on our ability to create something that had commonality because we knew that how we were going to ultimately create enterprise value <laughs> was going to be about like the commonality
0: that defined that platform. Once you saw the economics were working and you were able to grow it and scale it, I'm curious what the competitive landscape became like and whether others tried to copy what you were doing. The fact that
1: there was more economics in total cost of care than there was in traditional fee-for-service. Over the last six or seven years, that awareness has grown a lot. There's an increasing amount of awareness around the fact that primary care groups need partners. So those are two things that have clearly happened over the last seven years. The majority of the competitive landscape on the Medicare side going after kind of the subscription economics decided to do it through their own clinic model, like basically employ the doctors, put them in their own clinic, recruit the patients. So they understood where the economics were, but they thought it was more efficient to get them in their own structure than in the way that we did it. I think people were hesitant about partnership. I think they were hesitant about the inherent variability that you would think would come from different groups across the country. And I think a more traditional model for most businesses is ones where they can control a lot more of that variability and they own 100% of the economics for doing that. And so I think for reasons really inherent in the challenges in partnership and that the challenges in relationship building to develop that and then operating in the context of partnership, we have not seen a massive uptick in competition in the traditional model that we execute on. More around the category of Medicare subscription economics is really where that has originated.
0: What did it take inside the Agilon organization in terms of personnel and expertise to take this model you've been developing with them and then create all these partnerships?
2: The team that's been built Starts with the CEO, who is an executive who ran a very large health plan in California, where his career was spent partnering with these medical groups in the subscription like model that we use. And so he brought to the organization an understanding of the physician dynamic and an understanding of how the financial. Levers in the model work. And this is a model that has lots of subtlety and nuance in terms of the contractual relationship between the payer and our risk bearing entity. And so that was really critical as we reached an inflection point of really scaling this. Getting the CEO who was able to understand the nuances of scaling, getting someone who really understood the necessity of customer intimacy because these are small businesses, building that partnership takes time, it takes trust, was really critical. And then as we shift to the team, which is really critical to this, you need a good chief medical officer. You need a staff that is conversant in technology, digitization, data analytics. You need a good actuary and an actuarial team. You need data scientists who can aggregate these huge data Loads we get from both the physicians as well as from the health plans. You need a finance team and an experienced finance executive, and you need people who really know how to work with the partners. And part of the partner model is that an enormous amount of the resource that supports the partners is in the market, working alongside the partners' employees. And so you would see people working together, and you wouldn't know who worked in the practice, and who worked in the risk-bearing entity. And so making certain that we thought about the what I'll call the virtual model of partnering with that group in that market on the ground and helping build their local brand in this community, that's education of all of the physicians, as well as making certain that existing patients who are in the practice who may be turning 65 are aware of this as an option. So there is really a lot of skills and capabilities that have to reside in that local market, which then tap the kind of executive leadership of the enterprise. How did you go about building that central executive team? Well, one of the things that we did through both my experience and contacts as well as Robbie's is that people were attracted to the concept And I think that people believed that given the experience I had in California, the experience I had in Aetna doing a very dramatic turnaround and transformation of that business, Robbie's experience is one of the best known and most effective health services bankers. All of that really built a bit of a cachet, which attracted good candidates to us. We did use search firms in some instances, But most of the people were people that we either knew, knew of us, or reached out and became aware of what they thought was an exciting opportunity.
0: So in a relatively short period of time from flipping the on switch to last year, you bring the business public. And Ron, having been at the helm of a public company, you know that that's not really something for the meek. So I'm kind of curious how you thought about both preparing and knowing that this business was ready to be a public company. Well,
2: one of the things I would say is that from a governance point of view, we built the company's board with an expectation that going public was clearly one of the options. And we wanted a board who could support the CEO in that transition to public status. For example, the chair of our audit committee has always been an independent outside director who happened to have been the CFO Of one of the largest health plans in the country in his prior life. And we had a board that was highly diverse. And so, from a governance point of view, that's kind of the building block which supported the management in the company. And over time, as we ramped up to the IPO, tapping Robbie's expertise in getting ready for the IPO, understanding what the roadshow was, how to link the true operational performance to the explanation of the business and building a plan that reflected our belief about what our future could be. And so I would say in a lot of ways, this was a company that from the very beginning, we laid the foundation and erected an
1: infrastructure that we knew one day could conceivably be a public company. Ted, a couple of things just to add to that. So one was we kind of knew from the foundation of the company that it was likely to be a public company. So the partnership structures that we put in place with our partners really were built with the idea that this would be an independent business for a long time. The second thing was this business actually ahead of going public in 21 required capital along the way. So we put in our base capital and then we put in additional capital at CDNR as we were standing up the partnership because the business required more capital. But as we were starting to get greater and greater visibility to the subscription economics of the business, we were making a decision to accelerate the growth of the business. And so in a business like this, if you're going to accelerate the growth, you're going to lose more money. Very similar to what you've seen in the digital economy. You're really betting on the idea that your experience with a cohort is reflective of the fact that these are going to be the economics for the business on a go-forward basis. And that that cohort trajectory is really reflective of the value creation that you have happening for the business. We decided because we were going to take the business public over time, that we would start curating the capital base for the company ahead of going public. So in the 19 period, we brought in two of the largest public investors into our capital structure. One was the most well-recognized healthcare information technology investor, and one was another very, very well-recognized healthcare services investor, Morgan Stanley Investment Management and Capital Group. So two massive pockets of public capital. And then the business grew more. (laughs) And so we said, we were not still ready to be a public company. What's the right next decision? And to go to people who wanted to be a part of the public offering. And so we went to Henry Ellenbogen at Durable. We went to Wellington. We went to Rock Springs Capital, and they all came in. And so if you think about the building blocks for the business, to be a public company, we were super focused on having an economic model that worked for the public market. So this is a business model with significant visibility, both at the top line and because of this cohort maturity, a lot of earnings visibility. Ron talked about board structure and then a capital base. And so as we thought about taking the business public, we knew that there was a significant amount of demand from a capital perspective in our existing base of investors. We always talk a lot about exit and people talk about the curation of the exit to a strategic. We really did a lot of work to curate the exit for a public market. And I would argue not every company can be public. (laughs) Forget governance, forget everything else. Just the structure of their economic model does not allow that. (laughs) And so- the confidence that that and that base of investors, to be honest, partnered really closely with us as a company. And so their help in preparing us to be a public company, what did they care about? What were they going to measure? And the credibility they gave us when we went and sold the equity (laughs) was significant. And so we were darn purposeful about that piece of the
0: puzzle here. How did you think about the timing of when to go public?
1: If you think about Fall of 20 into spring of 21, public markets were unbelievable at that point in time, which was surprising, obviously, given where we were with the pandemic. It was as good a moment in time to take the business public as you could have. We were at that time and not generating adjusted earnings. We were obviously investing significantly in growth. We had a lot of visibility to growth and a lot of visibility to our trajectory. And the public markets were really rewarding growth, tech, healthcare innovation at that point in time in an unbelievably differentiated way. And primary care as a theme within those public markets was being rewarded on an outsized basis. Two not exactly the same companies, One Medical, which ultimately was bought by Amazon, Oak Street, were public companies at the time, trading at really big valuations. And so a setup of strong investor base, high visibility in the business, and an environment that was unbelievably supportive
0: was really critical to getting it done. This transaction and this investment thesis is quite different in some sense from a traditional buyout with operational expertise that you're bringing to bear to improve a company and then maybe sell it down the road. What's been the impact of having this success on how you're thinking more broadly across the entire organization at CDNR? This idea that there are some structural trends
1: that are going to define where we're going to go as a healthcare system and create really nice backdrop for investment opportunities. I think we have much greater awareness of how important those structural trends are and we're trying to be really zoned in on where those structural trends are really favorable long term. So I think we have increasing focus on that. Second is I do think we have more confidence in what the skill set Ron, I, others on our team bring in terms of our ability to inflect some of these businesses through either our network or what we learned around how to build these businesses. So as a result of that, today we are 50-50 partners with the largest physician group in Florida where we're trying to inflect that business and its transition to value. We have another business called Health, which JP Morgan, Post Haven with Berkshire and Amazon, decided to invest with us in a large insurance company to go move the commercial market, not the Medicare market, to risk. And so I think we've also developed a level of credibility with institutions, families, entrepreneurs, healthcare companies around our role in terms of being able to inflect some of these businesses. So it's created a different set of opportunities for us because value has been created in all these geographies across the country and all of these primary care physicians are our partners. We now have this ecosystem of people across the country who are operating in value. (laughs) And so when we look at other business opportunities now, we can look at it through the lens of how might we leverage that ecosystem To influence those businesses. And so not that we're a strategic buyer, but we have some assets that will allow us to inflect a business, which drove our recent partnership with Humana in a 60-40 transaction to buy a company called Gentiva. And so that has made a pretty significant impact. I think while we've always been operationally intense, I think it has taught us that in the healthcare environment, how we leverage our network, how we leverage our relationships, how we leverage our particular know-how in some of these areas. like We can underwrite that into our investment thesis in these areas. And we think about scaled growth capital, because this wasn't venture and this wasn't buyout. It was really scaled growth capital. I think we think there's a niche in the market, around scaled growth capital that we can probably get at a little bit that others
0: might not think they can. Ron, after this success, I'm curious how excited you get to scratch the itch for whatever's going to come next. We've had a significant impact on demonstrating what
2: can be done in helping physicians, improving the quality of care for Medicare Advantage patients. I think there's a opportunity for us to figure out how to take the same toolkit, modify it appropriately, and serve the needs of the commercially insured marketplace. Robbie and I have been working together on a company called PreHealth, which is taking what we've learned and working to demonstrate how that model can help self-insured employers Health plans and patients who are in that commercially insured, whether it be self insured or fully insured
0: market. And so that's an area of focus. I have one last question for both of you, which is what is your favorite aspect of private equity?
2: For me, the most important thing is building good companies and making them great companies. That's the aspiration. And like most things, sometimes we do, sometimes you don't. But to me, in order to build great companies, you have to have great leaders. You have to build great teams. You have to have companies with very strong economics and great business models, but companies with good culture
1: that really serve their constituencies very well. Being part of a team has been the most enjoyable aspect for me, both being a part of a team within CDNR, and then the idea of team with our management teams. People don't talk about it enough, but man, the sense of alignment that we have as a team of investment professionals sitting around the table, looking objectively at an opportunity together, thinking through it in a way where we collectively own the responsibility for the outcome, getting the benefit of really that shared sense of up and down. <laughs> of owning an outcome together it creates an environment to live and operate in that i don't think people get every day and then to align a group of talented people around the same mission and have a shared sense of alignment around the outcome that piece of it for me i have found to be really transformational to be honest with you in terms of like how you go about the day So that's
0: been very impactful. Ravi, Ron, thanks so much for sharing this really, really interesting growth success story, win, win, win all around for everyone involved. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.